0: So Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Strulli, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Hey, reporter Paul Monies has been following the campaign for the upcoming special election on state question 820 that would legalize recreational cannabis for adults 21 and over. The election is on Tuesday, March 7th. Paul, give us a recap of how state question 820 got to this special March election.
1: Yeah, so if you remember last summer, uh, the proponents of 820 were gathering signatures for the petition drive, and they turned in way more than they needed to the Secretary of State's office. Uh, The Secretary of State's office had a new process um, where they were verifying the voter registration of the folks signing the petition. That took a lot longer than normal, and it missed the November ballot.
0: So uh, what are the main provisions of State Question 820 for recreational marijuana?
1: So this is for adults age 21 and over um, if it passes, and basically it allows you to have up to about an ounce of uh, marijuana flour in your possession or, or use, um, and also includes uh, different amounts for different types of marijuana, too, for, for um, vaping products and other types of marijuana, too.
0: Now, the initiative uh, also has some criminal justice reforms that come along with it. Is
1: that right? That's right. It sets up a process where you can go back if you've had a previous marijuana con- conviction for a low level crime uh, to go back and kind of automatically expunge it. That would take uh, some court action as well. Uh, but proponents say that this would allow a lot of people who have been caught up in the past, who are out free, not in jail or prison right now, uh, to kind of take care of some stuff on their records that would ha- um, hinder them from renting a house or buying a house or getting student loans or getting other kinds of assistance from the government. Well, what are the backers of A20 saying? They're saying that it's time to do this because we've had four or five years now of a medical market and um, that's been great success uh, in terms of retail sales as well. Uh, there's been some downsides and extra illicit mar- marijuana grows has been out there, but they said it's been worked pretty well for that, especially now that they have the seed to sell tracking so they can track the, the, the marijuana from basically from growing phase to the retail phase. And that was a little delayed to get implemented, but this will be right off the bat for, for recreational sales.
0: All right. Well, who is opposed to the initiative and what's their thinking?
1: So there's a lot of law enforcement groups that are opposed to this that have seen some of the, the unintended consequences of medical market and a lot of the illicit grows and crime that comes along with that. Uh, they're saying that opening it up to recreational would expand all those illicit crimes and cause more problems for society in the rural areas, especially where lots of grow operations are competing with uh, traditional farmers for water and electricity.
0: This is probably one of those topics that's uh, got a lot of money going into the election. Uh, How much has been spent so far?
1: That's right. Yeah. So, uh, the backers spent about $3 million last year to get this on the ballot. That includes the petition gathering signatures and verification, various court dates they were had to to go through. Um, they've since, since the beginning of the year spent about 800,000 on the campaign itself, which includes some TV ads, mailers, uh, digital ads. Um, the no campaign, uh, just started kind of last few weeks organized in, in January as an official committee opposing it. They've, um, Basically spent about 200000 so far, so kind of outgunned so far.
0: Well, who's putting the money into the Yes campaign?
1: So a lot of the big donors to the Yes campaign um, have been some philanthropy groups that have had traditional interests in reforms for the criminal justice system, uh, as well as obviously some national uh, marijuana legalization groups and the American Civil Li- Liberties Union.
0: Uh, when uh, this failed to get on the November ballot, there was a lot of discussion of uh, how that might affect the chances of 820 passing, right, because of a voter turnout question. So who do we think might turn out uh, for a special election in March? And are there any recent precedents of a single statewide election with one question with no other uh, major statewide races
1: yeah this is going to be really hard to predict on the turnout side and in fact the, the campaign is spending a lot of money uh motivating mo- voters to get out for a statewide election that there's, there's nothing else statewide on the ballot in November, um, march 7th there's some local races um but you know it's going to be a attracting some folks who want criminal justice reform for marijuana uh, offenses, as well as people who, you know, maybe don't want to get in the medical market, uh, don't want to be registered as a patient with the government. So kind of have that libertarian lean and of like, I don't want the government to know anything about me uh, and have that access to marijuana, uh, much like you would at a retail liquor store if you're 21 and over. Uh, But it's really it's really going to be a turnout based election. And it's really hard to predict. We've actually had only one uh, state question in the last 20 years or so that's been outside of a primary election or a general election. And that was um, back in 2005, I believe. Uh, There was a September election to raise the uh, state gas tax, and that failed pretty badly, 87%. But of course, that was a tax uh, completely different from uh, medical marijuana proposition this year.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can uh, read Paul's story about the Uh, State Question 820 proposition on our website, oklahomawatch.org. A Mexican consulate is expected to open its doors in Oklahoma City this spring. Lionel Ramos, our race and equity reporter at Oklahoma Watch, has been following its progress closely and recently sat down to talk with the person selected by the Mexican government to run that operation. He comes to long story short with the latest details. Lionel, we've been hearing about a a Mexican consulate coming to Oklahoma for a few years now. So what's the news at the moment?
2: Yeah, so in uh, in August uh, of 2022, uh, the Mexican government uh, appointed a head consul to run the consulate in OKC. Um, That news has kind of been circulating already. The date that they had given... Was sometime in the spring. Well, I spoke to the consul person, and she said that they are expected to take appointments starting on May first.
0: All right. And who is the appointed uh, head
2: consul? Her name is Adurne Pineda. Uh, she started conducting field field visits after being appointed to OKC um, in in September, and and those basically included, you know, um, talking with Governor Stid, uh, Mayor Holt, and the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce to scout out some possible locations.
0: Do we know where the consulate will be located? We
2: don't. Uh, And and, the consul Pineda, uh, she didn't want to share the location for for two reasons. Um, The first and main one is to avoid people showing up before services are available. As of right now, people should still be going to Little Rock or Dallas, um, which is what they've been doing for years. Uh, and the other is to really stop any groups from conflating the consulate's image with their own. Um, initially, there were some some nonprofits that were hoping to have the consulate location in their offices, and and it's a high priority for the Mexican government to to remain independent from any other entity.
0: Now what services can uh, Mexican Oklahomans expect from a consulate here? Uh,
2: so the services will be divided uh, divided into. Four distinct departments, uh, which in large part rely on community partnerships. The first and main one is documentation that includes, you know, applying for renewing passports, consular IDs, Mexican voter registration cards. Um, There's also a Mexican Social Security program that Mexican nationals can enroll in from here to pay into a retirement fund so that if they move when they move back to their country, they can benefit from that. Um, The next is protection, and that's really just helping folks navigate immigration and labor disputes. Um, other, you know, civil and criminal matters, there is no representation. So nobody's going to, you know, practice law and defend anybody, but they, through community partnerships, hope to be able to connect folks with attorneys that will either provide paid services or pro bono services. Um, The last one is, or the last service related one anyway, is community. Um, That's just helping folks navigate opening bank accounts, buying houses. Um, There will be some pretty consistent health fairs that will offer things like free mammograms, vaccines diabetes and cholesterol tests and dental and vision exams. Um, And then the last department is promotion, which is basically just public relations um, and promoting the Mexican culture around town and in the state.
0: All right. Now, a consulate doesn't just uh, suddenly appear out of nowhere. What does the uh, political will look like?
2: Right. So the process really starts at the federal level. The Mexican federal government makes a pitch to the U.S. State Department for where it wants to open a consulate in the U.S., Um, But that pitch came after about 30 years of advocacy from the Mexican community in Oklahoma and more recently uh, support from Governor Kevin Stitt and OKC Mayor David Holt. In fact, uh, Governor Stitt traveled to Mexico in late 2021 to advocate for a Mexican consulate in Oklahoma on behalf of the Mexican community here. And, And that helped push the envelope quite a bit.
0: Now, beyond services for those Mexican Oklahomans, Why is it important for a Mexican consulate uh, to come to Oklahoma?
2: You know, uh, I talked to House District 89 Representative Arturo Alonso Sandoval about this. Uh, He's a first-generation U.S. citizen. He's a dual citizen with with Mexico. And and he said uh, a Mexican consulate in Oklahoma, you know, won't only save families time and money, but it will also help an already growing population to thrive and fully contribute to the state. He pointed out that as the Mexican population grows— so too does the state's workforce and and cultural and political diversity.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Lionel. You can read uh, Lionel's coverage of the coming Mexican consulate uh, that will be here this spring on our website, oklahomawatch.org. Catholic leaders in Oklahoma have proposed opening a new online charter school and are seeking state authorization and funding. Jennifer Palmer, who covers education for Oklahoma Watch, is here to tell us more about that controversial proposal. Jennifer, what can you tell us about the plan for the school?
3: So this is a school that they would um, like to open in 2024. So next fall, the proposal says uh, there would be about 500 students in the first year. They would cap it. And once they reached about 1,500, um, it is basically a school, an online virtual charter school that would use um, curriculum just like in the Catholic school system, according to the leaders who have proposed this. Um, And that includes uh, the educational components as well as the religious components.
0: So you're saying this would be a religious public charter
1: school?
3: That's right. And that, you know, obviously there are state and federal laws that prohibit that, um, which is what makes this so controversial and has made so many people interested in keeping an eye on what happens here.
0: Now, who has the authority to decide whether the school moves forward?
3: So the decision rests with a very small board, the statewide virtual charter school board, Um, They're the only entity under state law that can authorize a virtual charter school um, that is statewide. And they, um, you know, we've reported previously, it's a five-member board. They had dropped down to two members late last year and had to cancel a couple of meetings. Um, They have a new appointment, so they're now up to three members. So these three folks would are the ones um, who will make the decision on whether or not to authorize the school.
0: Oh, you attended their last meeting. Um, they heard the pitch for this school. What what did you learn at that meeting?
3: Um, so we heard, you know, uh the plans for the school. Um like I mentioned earlier, that we also heard from some opposition to this plan, you know, there were some comments. Um I I I don't know which way the board members are leaning. I mean, they definitely asked a lot of questions um, about the proposal. They seemed especially interested in um, how school leaders would handle special education students, which, of course, is a huge difference um, between the public school that they want to open, which is, you know, required to accept all students and to accommodate all disabilities Um, And the um, private Catholic schools that they operate now, which don't have to do that.
0: Is there support for the school uh, beyond the people trying to start it?
3: There is. Uh, The Catholic leaders in Oklahoma have been assisted by the University of Notre Dame, who they're helping kind of um, push this proposal forward as a national test case um, and then, of course, we've heard from Governor Stitt uh, just uh, this week, has put out a letter um, in support of the uh, former AG's decision that opened the door for this. Um, and, and State Superintendent Ryan Walters has also uh, expressed his
0: support for this school. Now, what about the opposition?
3: There's definitely opposition. Uh, there's uh, at least one organized group, uh, Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, and they were uh, they had an attorney come and speak at the at the statewide virtual charter school board meeting. Um, I've also heard from you know since I've been reporting on this, I've heard from quite a few folks that are um, very against this idea of public money to a religious entity to operate a school.
0: Oh. Uh- both the current Attorney General, Gentner Drummond, and his predecessor, John O'Connor, who is a, a Kevin Stitt appointee, have weighed in on this topic, uh, but they said two very different things, right?
3: That's right. O'Connor's opinion late last year is what kind of opened the door for this um, application to move forward. He basically advised the statewide virtual charter school board to ignore um, state and federal laws that prohibit this uh, type of arrangement um, and require public schools to be non-sectarian in all of their operations um, because of some Supreme Court decisions that have come down recently he says those um, now should cause the state to reconsider um, our uh, our charter school law and 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 to let this move forward um and then, Um, Gettner Drummond last week came in with a letter to the statewide virtual charter school board saying, no, no, that, I don't agree with that at all. I would advise you to move very cautiously with this. Um, And, you know, said that the former opinion really, his quote is, misuses the concept of religious liberty by employing it as a means to justify state-funded religion. So he, you know, Says in his letter, I believe in religious freedom. And that's why I don't think we should um, allow it in a state-sponsored school.
0: All right. What happens next?
3: So the board has a meeting in late March on the 21st. I don't know if they will have a decision by then. Um. This latest um, letter from Drummond just came out last week, so that may um, factor into how they move forward. Um, They do have to make a decision by the end of April, and either way, it's probably headed to court.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. You can read Jennifer's coverage of the proposed uh, religious-affiliated public charter school and all her other coverage of education throughout Oklahoma, On our website, oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, you can also subscribe to her weekly newsletter, Education Watch. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch... I'm Ted Struli. Thanks for listening.